0: Pack your bags and get ready for a different kind of Vegas experience with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi.
2: Well, you know, we talk about the mafia a lot on this show. The relationship between Las Vegas and the mob is well known. We've seen some great movies, uh, The Godfather, Goodfellas, Goodfellas is probably my favorite film of all time. But there's a book you got to get. It's called Inside. It's written by our guest today, Scott Hoffman. And if you like those movies, you're going to really like this because this is the really the inside dope, if you want, for what goes on in the mob. And, Scott, I wanted to ask you, first of all, when you watch those films, do you say to yourself, well, they got some of this right, but they're
1: missing something? Well, you know, Steve, I'll tell you, for example... We'll use Goodfellows, because I hear that a lot from people. You know, and, I, and I had to go back and look at the movies once I started, after I wrote the book, because I never watched the movies, because when you're in the life and you see the life, it's, it's not always something you want to pursue. But as far as Goodfellows went, I went to college, and I graduated from Long Island University in Brooklyn, New York. And I got an academic scholarship, but I had to come up with money for room and board. So I did what I did best, and I made contacts, and I worked mob social clubs with Colombo crime family, Lucchese, and Bonanno. And the Lucchese crime family is where I met Henry Hill, and I worked at his bar, the Bamboo Lounge, which was in uh, Sheepshead Bay in Brooklyn. So I knew all the real good fellows, and the movie didn't always depict them as they really were. That I'll tell you.
2: Is part of that because they do some of that stuff just strictly for entertainment, because otherwise... I go through your book, and I say, wow, this is really interesting, but uh, it's not the type of life that you would love to be a part of.
1: No, it's done strictly for entertainment. I remember David Chase, the creator of Sopranos, and I knew the real Sopranos, the Bayardo family from Newark. I knew them. And he'd always say 90% of it is made up and 10% is real. And it's really done for entertainment, and they do a superb job, you know, who's ever producing the movies and the actors, actresses, they all do a superb job. But of course, they don't know the life, okay? So they don't really know what is going on. And uh, again, they keep things out of it. As you read my book, for example, the one example is uh, we use the uh, juice collector, Wally Grayback. And my book is uh, fictional, but it's composites of real people and real events. And I was out with them when I was 12 years old. And It was on a juice collection, and the woman that answers the door was the guy's wife, and she was very, very pregnant, very, very much so. Everything was really showing and probably getting near the end of her pregnancy. And what really happened to her physically, I had to water down for the book because if I really would have wrote exactly what I saw and exactly what was going on, uh, a lot of the readers, I think they would have gotten nauseous. So I had to water that down, what really happened.
2: First of all, you talk about the life, and you were kind of born into the life. Kind of explain how you got involved in this from being a small child.
1: Yeah, well, what it was, my father was high-ranking in the outfit. He was a manager for Paul Rica, and he was a consigliere for Sam Giancana. He reported to Tony Accardo, who was the CEO of the outfit, who you call the CEO. And he was also, in 1973, uh, a consigliere for Joey Ayupa. But he had the plan for Las Vegas, okay? He had uh, the seven hotels, casinos. He had the actual plan to get it started. And people ask me, well, how did he know? Well, my father, while he wasn't involved, but knew how Mayor Lansky was running Havana, Cuba, when Batista was in power at the end of World War II. It was actually like a little Las Vegas, so he was aware of it. And he used to always tell me, Scott, the best ideas are the ones you steal from somebody else so he kind of had a real good idea but as far as getting the plan approved that was a a hard thing from what he what he told me because paul rica just listened sam Giancana at that time said well we'll see and tony Accardo says oh las vegas is a flash in the pan i don't care what bugsy siegel did it's not going to last so my father told tony Accardo, look we can make a lot of money we can make this happen and tony Accardo says well how can this happen and he said, we'll take the dirty money from Chicago, all the illegal money from Chicago, and we'll money laundered in Las Vegas by buying the chips, cashing in the chips, and bringing the money back clean, because the money would be clean at that point. And that's when Tony Ocardo said, okay, go ahead with the plan. And I was going out to Las Vegas with my father at the age of eight, at least about five times a year. And my father's approach with me was he wanted me to see everything in mob life. We want my eyes to be open, but he said, you have to see everything so you will know if that's what you want, then you'll know what you're getting into. He said, I don't want you to come back and tell me, well, you, did, you said this and that and that didn't happen. No, you're going to see everything, everything from the beginning, everything to the end. And as far as my father, he would, we would go over things. If you think of like a sports team, how they practice every day, we were constantly going over everything, all the details, everything I was going to be seeing. So I would react automatically to stuff that I was seeing.
2: You keep talking in the book, too, about this was a choice. But, and I think it's so brilliant on your father's part just simply because you know, if you want to do this, you've got to understand the entire thing because once you're in, there's no getting out.
1: That's correct. Once you're in, that's when the consequences start occurring. And most of the people that get in are usually high school dropouts, maybe 16, 17, maybe a little bit older. But when they go in, they go in with different expectations because they haven't seen anything. If they come from a mobbed up family with their father or uncle, it's not talked about at home, okay? So, you know, they don't know really what's going on. I can't tell you how many times guys would come to me and say, well, it's my father in the mafia, my uncle in the mafia. And I used to tell them, go talk with your father, go talk with your uncle, okay? Okay. So they didn't know what they were getting into. But I knew at a young age, and by that age of 16, I was a hardened veteran. In knowledge of what was going on in mob life.
2: So did it did it ever really appeal to you? I mean, was there a point where you thought, yeah, this is what I'm gonna do, or was it just kind of like, well, it's an opportunity uh, one way or another? But do I want to do this, uh, or it was something like, oh my God, I mean, you you saw, as I understand, uh, a murder right when you were a little kid, and He's nine years old. Oh my gosh, yeah, and said some other horrible things, like you're talking about the the whole thing with the pregnant woman and what have you. So was it was something like right away you figured um, this isn't for me? Or, well, let me see, you know, and do what your father said, really, to know every facet of it.
1: Well, the thing, the thing was, I always remember my father, I was about 16 at the point, and I'm getting near you know, the end of high school, obviously. And he would say to me, he says, always remember this about the life, as mob life is called, it's always called the life. And uh, he would say to me, oh, it's a two-shouldered operation. And I'd say, well, Dad, what are you talking about? And he'd say, The left shoulder, you're looking over guys who are going to whack you. Or there's another term that the public doesn't know, and that's give him his receipt. So, Steve, if you're ever in a store and a clerk wants to give you a receipt, run out of that store as fast (laughs) as you can. Because that's another way of saying kill the guy. That's the order. Give him his receipt, okay? And he would say the other shoulder is the G, meaning the government, FBI, U.S. Marshal, ATF. Uh, IRS criminal division. They were all like lumped together, obviously. He says they're after you constantly because that's their job. So he said, you're going to have to understand that. And that really is the truth.
2: Well, and people all know about the the awful side of the life. There's also a business side, though, right? I mean, you got to oh, run that thing like a business. So.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely, sure. The, the first conversation today is about money last conversation today is about the money. And everyone would be our friend. I'd be with my father, obviously, when he's paying off the crooked politicians, the crooked judges, the crooked law enforcement people that we had on the payroll, okay? And you also have to remember, guys that uh, couldn't get loans because of, say, bad credit, they would come to loan sharks for money, and they had businesses. And what would happen would be they couldn't pay back the interest because it was very high interest, it was usually like six for five, and six for five means if you come in to borrow 500 the interest is $600, so the next week you need 1100 So if you don't have 500 this week, where are you going to get 1100 right. in a week? Okay? So what would happen is the outfit would take over the business and let the guy keep about 35% of the business. they take about 65%. And then if the guy owned uh, the building, say where his business was, a year after that, building would be torched and the outfit would get a hundred percent of the insurance money. So yeah, things were run strictly as a business. It was, you know, everything was done by a business. It it wasn't because this is how these guys made lo- money. Now, in my father's case, he worked legitimate jobs, okay? And the reason he did that, so he got a W-2 because he was always audited every year, but this way he had a W-2 to show legitimate income. And Obviously, in cases that are made against wise guys, generally the IRS criminal division is a part of the investigation. And they're always looking for money that hasn't been reported or tax returns that don't show the money, false tax returns or a tax misdemeanor. Those are the three main charges, federal charges that you can be charged with. So he'd always do that. Uh, you know, and he, he worked uh, out of churches where he would use the church phone. He would meet with people in churches. He would meet with people in cemeteries. He used pay phones. So he was very careful because he didn't, la- he didn't talk really in restaurants because he'd always say to me, you know, they could have a bug under the table. They could have a bug under the table. So he, wasn't, he would sit there with guys, but he didn't say much.
2: Sounds like a pretty smart guy. You know, you have to be pretty creative to do this, right? Because you're, you're always yeah. trying to stay one step above the cops that are always following you and the feds and what have you.
1: Oh, yeah. It was always that way. He'd always tell me, remember, Scott, he'd say you have to be three steps ahead of everybody. And I'd say, Dad, isn't the saying two steps? He said, no. He said, because if you're two steps and you fall a step behind, you're only a, they're only a step away, the people that are after you. And you always have to remember this. In the game, you want to be the hunter. You don't want to be the game, you meaning you direct the action, you know. And uh, so, yeah, he was. He was a very intelligent guy. He was a good student in high school. The vice principal met him because my father worked in um, the cafeteria to, you know, get a free lunch. And that's how he met the vice principal his junior year. So when he was a senior in high school... The uh, vice principal checked out his grades and said, you're a very good student, you're getting good grades. What do you want to do? And my father at that point really wanted to be a medical doctor. He wanted to be a general surgeon at that point. And uh, the vice principal said, well, let me see what I can do for you. He knew someone at the admissions office at the University of Chicago, and he comes back and tells my father, I can get you a scholarship to go to the University of Chicago. My father was very excited. He told me, he said, I went home, I told my mother that I can go to college. I can study to be a doctor, pre-med major. And his mother said, that's nice, but you got to go get a job. And that ended college.
2: More in just a moment with Scott Hoffman, author of Inside, a fascinating book that discusses the internal workings of the outfit and organized crime family. This is Vegas Never Sleeps.
3: Ciao. I am Jada Valenti. You're listening to Vegas
0: Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi.
3: have a car sitting around you want to get rid of? Then here's a great idea. Donate your car and help veterans and their families. Yes, one fast call to the Veteran Car Donation Program and we will come and remove your car for free. Fast, free towing and 24-hour response. You can donate most cars, trucks or SUVs in most conditions. The proceeds raised goes to help active military, veterans and their families and you get a tax deduction. All you need to do is make this free call. Get rid of that old car and help the vets. We make it easy. Make this free call now and book your fast and easy pickup. Call the veteran donation program now. Donate your car and help veterans and their families. Operators are standing by.
0: Here's the number. 800-932-1176. 800-932-1176. 800-932-1176. That's 800-932-1176. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi.
2: We are talking with Scott Hoffman, author of Inside. Scott's dad, a consigliere for the Chicago outfit, wanted him to know what the life was like in order for Scott to decide if that was the future he really wanted. You want to talk about working for a tough boss? I gotta ask you: Is there anybody tougher than Sam Giancana? I mean, anybody that knows anything about that name knows that was a guy that was very, very difficult to get along with. And you, you, consequently, a guy like your father, you can't make mistakes.
1: Yeah, he was—he was he a was type of guy. First of all, he had a very narcissistic personality, okay, and everything always was about him and had to be about him. And he was—and he was the type of guy that uh, if you weren't bringing in the money. That's when he'd give out the receipt. Okay? I mean everything was always based about money. He didn't want to see any errors. He didn't want to see any mistakes. But he caused a lot of mistakes. He caused an awful lot of mistakes and a lot of problems with him. And he was the one actually who was really close with Frank Sinatra. Frank wasn't close with Tony Accardo. My father, he talked to my father, Frank would talk to him. My father respected him as, a, as an entertainer, but he didn't respect him for his running around on Nancy Barbado. He never never liked that at all. And he had a lot to deal with, Nancy Barbato, because when Frank would come to Chicago, a lot of times Nancy would come with him. Not all the time, because she had the kids, but sometimes. And they're in the Ambassador East Hotel, and my father you know, would have to drive her back, and she'd tell my father, why don't you stay for a while, make your coffee? And they would talk. So... But yeah. Sam Giancana was a very, very difficult person to deal with. But after he was removed, the outfit really was never the same in the sense of he put fear into people. When he said he wanted to meet with you, people got shaky. I mean, we had one guy, Frank Skid Caruso, he used to drink, uh, he would start to smoke two cigarettes at one time almost. He had one lit and he'd smoke yeah. in one. Yeah. And, and Skid did a good job. But he was, you know, he didn't know how he was going to be taken by uh, Sam Giancana.
2: You know, it sounds like in all these cases, and you knew all these people, big, strong leadership was really important. I mean, it wasn't like you could build up a good organization and it kind of runs itself. Huh? They it, it, it all no. had these strong hands.
1: Well, in my book, In Inside, I talk about it. And if you've read the complete book, um, I talk about the difference between a gangster and a racketeer. Okay. And the difference between a gangster and a racketeer is that a gangster will take action right away. Okay, he won't wait. You basically take this is what we got to do. We're going to do it. A racketeer will say, let's have a sit down. Let's have a meeting. Okay, that's what a sit down is. And it's not where he won't give the order on somebody because racketeers will. But when a street crew sees that someone is a racketeer, they don't have a lot of confidence in how the street crew is going to be run. And one of the things about a consigliere, one of his responsibilities that he can do, my father wouldn't do it, but uh, it can be done, is that a consigliere, if the street crew is not running right for whatever reason, he has the authority to remove the capo, the copper Jimmy, the boss. He can remove him. Now he can do it himself. He can ask somebody to do it, but if he tells a street guy to do it, the street guy is going to go to the boss and say, you know, Mr. Hoffman wants to get rid of him. Of course, the next order is going to be on Mr. Hoffman. So, if you're going to make that move, you have to get that 22 with a silencer and do the shooting yourself.
2: I want to talk about the outfit because the one thing this book, this book is amazing, folks. You got to read it honestly. If you like this stuff, this is the truth, and it's really detailed. And one of the things you really cover is the uh, the outfit. They did a lot more than just the stuff you know about. Just not just gambling oh. and loan
1: shark. They ran no. everything, huh? I mean, just about. Oh, absolutely. Oh my gosh, it was union. Un- not only union activities, but we had, for example, we had four doctors on the payroll. They were on the payroll. Okay, these were licensed doctors, regular medical doctors. They were on the payroll to write prescriptions for amphetamines, okay? Because on the street, amphetamines sold five times what they were actually worth. And the doctors would get 20% kickback on that, okay? Then we had two other doctors who would write prescriptions for Paragoric. Now, what Paragoric was, it was a liquid uh, medicine that was strictly prescription, started in the 1920s. And they, even in the 1970s, they were using it. And what it was used for, if you had extreme diarrhea, really, really bad, uh, a doctor would prescribe that. And the reason that it was, if was involved with it, because Paragoric had a very small amount of opium in it, okay? So these guys on the street to get high, they'd drink the, almost a the whole bottle of Paragoric to get that opium in their system. So, and they, and the doctors would get 10% on those prescriptions, so, yeah, the outfit, like I say, they were involved in all different things, uh, you know, in produce. They were involved in, with the trucking industry. Everything was whatever they could make money at, they were doing it. And a lot of people don't know because they just see the basics, what my father would always call uh, the criminal entrees on the menu. Okay. okay. <laughs> but there was a lot more.
2: Yeah, I mean, in political, uh, you talk about political corruption. Well, obviously, oh, yeah. with Xi and yeah. how much did you hear about all that JFK stuff? I, I just... well, yeah, I know it from
1: the beginning. I know it from the beginning, how it started. And how it start, really started, I'll try and keep it very brief, because it's a long, long story. Mm-hmm. You could do more than one show on that, on that deal. And it all has, had to do with the Calneva Casino in South Lake Tahoe. That's how it all started. That's how it began. That was how everything began between the, the Kennedys and the outfit, and, and it, it started out good because Robert Kennedy made a lot of promises of what he was going to do and his brother John, yeah, well, we're going to do it, but once they got in, my father was never happy. Once M.G. and of told him about Calneva, he said to him, okay, you know, that's great. If that's, if that's the type of casino you want, fine, that's great, and, but my father would tell me, he said, first of all, it's in the mountains and it's, they get about well, close to 240 inches of snow, okay? The airport was at South Lake Tahoe. It was a very small airport. It was just like an airport that would be used for corporate jets. So that was, was a problem. And uh, what, it was, what it was really coming down to was, see, with the Nevada Gaming Commission, you have to have legitimate people to get the license. My father went through this, obviously. And Frank Sinatra was going to apply for the license, it takes about a year. And Sam Giancana would be the uh, private partner, okay, the -the behind-the-scenes partner, because he was in the Black Book, in Las Vegas's Black Book, which meant uh, that you could not go into a casino. If you were in the Black Book and, say, you walked into a casino, a mobster walked in, uh, the casino could lose their license. They wouldn't be fined. They could actually have their license removed from them. So... That's the way it was going to be set up, okay? And it all started with Peter Lawford, who was married to Patricia Kennedy, who in in February 1958 told Peter Lawford, my brother Jack is going to run for the presidency of the United States and file his papers in February of 1959. And that's how it all really started.
2: Wow. And they all knew Joe Kennedy, right? Because he had his little uh, dealings. Well, yeah, see, the thing, as
1: far as far as, as Joseph P. Kennedy, the father... See, he took the kids to Calneva as a a big ski resort, and he knew the previous owner, you know, before Frank bought it. So they were all aware of Calneva. That was nothing new to them, okay, because they had been out there as kids, you know, skiing, and because it's a big ski resort. And so that was nothing new to them, so they were very aware of it. But my father never cared for it because of the weather conditions. It was only a a two-lane highway, a lot of infrastructure. And and he would tell me, he says, Scott, you always got to remember politicians promise and once they get in office, they forget about you until the next election. And that's what happened. That's really what happened.
2: This is a book you got to have. It's called Inside, and you're hearing these stories. And the book, which is a fictional account based on real things, It's just a must-read. First of all, Scott, before we get into any more, how do people get a hold of the book Inside?
1: Sure. Uh, If you go to Amazon and put in my name, Scott, S-C-O-T-T, middle initial M, you have to put that middle initial M because there's other Scott Hoffmans that are authors. And then my last name, Hoffman, H-O-F-F-M-A-N, and then put in the title of the book Inside, and you will see the book is sold as a paperback. And it's also sold as Kindle. I've had some people, you know, who buy it as Kindle and read it on the train, their commuter train. So it uh, can be done, you know, either way. But that's, that's where it's sold, and that's where the people can find it.
2: Uh, yeah, and it's well worth the effort to find this. Uh, I'm, and if you get the hard copy, I'm telling you, you're going to be passing it around. Tell people about it. It's a book they're going if they like those movies, and most people do, you're going to love this. And this is based on fact. Uh, Scott, we want to have you on again sometime. This was fantastic. Has anybody talked to you about making a movie out of this? No, and that's the whole
1: thing. See, no one has talked to me about it yet. And I always felt from my first page of my first rough draft that I did it, because I don't know how to put it on the computer, so it was eight hundred eighty handwritten pages, that's what the manuscript was, I always felt, yeah, this could be a movie, because not only in one case you can break it up and take the various parts of the book and maybe make separate movies, and not only beyond that, it's what I know that could provide other things, for example, uh, how the Kennedys and how uh, the outfit started that you could do a miniseries on. I know a lot of things. I got, as you can tell, I have a lot of information about a lot of things that can be very lucrative, but to get somebody interested, that's another problem.
2: Well, hopefully they hear this conversation and it's <laughs> sure. they do a little investigating. It's well worth the time. Scott, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you very much, Stephen. Thank you, listeners, and you for uh, allowing me to speak to you.
2: Please follow Vegas Never Sleeps on all social media platforms, including X, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Maggi reminding you... Vegas never sleeps. Vegas, here we go!
3: out to file your claim. So if you've been diagnosed with cancer and you've used Roundup, call the legal helpline now. You could receive a free cash award and have your medical expenses
0: covered. And time to file is almost gone, so please call right now. 800-481-5621. 800-481-5621. 800-481-5621. That's 800-481-5621. Attention timeshare
2: owners, call the timeshare exit hotline now. We can help you legally get out of your expensive timeshare contract. If you're fed up with the maintenance fees, learn how you can terminate your timeshare legally and permanently. Call right now for your free consultation, 800-803-5449. 800-803-5449, 800-803-5449, 800-803-5449.